0: Hi, my name's Gary Cole. Welcome to The Football Coaching Life, a podcast brought to you by Football Coaches Australia and Making Media the podcast professionals. The Football Coaching Life is about the stories of Australia's men and women coaches, the people we entrust with developing our players and our teams. What we found is in the main, these stories haven't been told. Today, we're honoured to have Alan Stadic, who's the new head coach of the Philippines Women's National Team. And I'm going to come back to their nickname uh, a little while later, but let's introduce Alan properly. Alan played for the Australian school Schoolboys uh, as a junior. His senior football was played in the New South Wales Premier League with Bonnery White, White Eagles, Bankstown City Lions and Sutherland Sharks. Coaching career, not quite sure of the order of this stage, so I'm sure we'll uh, we'll, we'll tick these boxes as we go through, but coach at the Hill Sports High in the football program which has has helped develop some wonderful players over the journey 11 years at the New South Wales Institute of Sport uh, coaching the New South Wales Sapphires to a couple of championships there in the the old WNSL um assistant coach at the Young Matildas at the 2006 World Cup in Russia and then of course the inaugural head coach of Sydney FC A League women got to kept getting that right. Um, We had a a wonderful time, qualified for the finals every year, two championships, two premierships, and third place at the FIFA International Women's Club Championship. And then that wonderful five-year stint um, as head coach of the Matildas, during which they were finalists in the Asian Cup in 2014, 2018, quarterfinals of the World Cup in 2015, quarterfinals at the Olympics in 2016, won the Tournament of Nations, Uh, in 2017 and then of course qualified for the 2019 World Cup and at the time taking the Matildas to fourth ranked in the world uh, the highest position they've ever been in and then most recently head coach of the A-League men at Central Coast Mariners where he had two fantastic seasons last year finishing in third place with um, uh, a number of the players coming on Uh, uh, Alu Kual headed off to VfB Stuttgart in the Bundesliga Rion Tonyuk and Oli Bazanic in the team of the season, along with Matt Simon and Mark Birigidi on the bench, um, and recently resigned and has and now uh, contracted as head coach of the Philippines women's national team. Welcome, Alan
1: Stadic. Thanks, guys. That was the longest intro in history. Thanks for that. <laughs>
0: yeah that's well that's it mate you've had far too much success on your journey you know that's <laughs> it, it's good that we introduce people properly Th- thanks for coming along i Al. really appreciate you uh, making the time i know you're uh, you want to fill us in about where you're at because I, I know you're about to head off to uh, to meet some of your new players
1: yeah really excited actually so um yeah just been packing and, and meeting with some of the players and the team management the last week or so so um Yeah, leave on Sunday, uh, two days time and um, get ready for the long journey. We got two months in Los Angeles preparing as a team together. Um, And then we leave straight from L.A. uh, to go to India, to go to Mumbai, uh, to the Asian Cup. And, and, you know, fingers crossed, everything goes well and and we prepare well and play well and, and qualify for our first World Cup in history.
0: Yeah, I guess you've been busy doing some research on on the playing group. I'm, I saw that they um, really haven't played like a lot of teams since 2019, which is a while, ranked 65th in the world. How, how much, Al, how much about um, women's football in the Philippines um, did you know before you, you took on this gig and, and did your research? Because I know you're taking um, Noel Arate with you as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm taking Luca as well. Luca Tonetti, who was our strength and conditioning coach at the Mariners as well. So, you know, Perfect. great to be able to bring along two two fantastic professionals um, along with us on, on the journey. And, you know, that's going to add, you know, it's really going to complement what we take over and bring with us to the players over there, um, you know, when we get there to LA. But um, yeah, look, funnily enough, they were in they were in the last Asian Cup and that was the, the first Asian Cup that Philippines had qualified for, or well, probably getting close to 20 odd years. Um, and they were in the other group. And, obviously know, doing our scouting at the tournament, the other group played on alternative days. So, you know, we just happened to go out and watch all their games actually, all their three or four okay. matches that they played. Um, and, you know, going into the tournament, I, I, I thought they were they would really struggle. Um, I thought they were going to get beaten by big scores having not had a lot of senior international experience in, in that period of time at youth or senior level. I hadn't really seen much of the Philippines, but but they really surprised me. They were at a they were at a you know sort of moderate level. Um, but you could see there was a lot of room there for potential. Um you know, they they competed well. I think they lost three nil to China. Um they lost four one to Thailand, they beat Jordan, um, and then in a playoff match lost to South Korea um five nil. But but certainly they showed enough that they can compete with with you know some of the stronger teams of Asia and, and in women's football, you know, especially back three or four years ago, Asia was if not equally the strongest continent in the world, certainly the second strongest just behind Europe. Europe's probably got a little bit more depth. But, you know, when you looked at the world rankings, Australia, Japan, North Korea were all ranked in the top 10. Um, You know, Japan had won the 2011 World Cup and silver medalists at 2012 Olympics and World Cup finalists in 2015. So we're talking about really strong continent. And, you know, the Philippines showed in 2018 that at, at their first tournament, uh, they're at a good level, and you know we all know what it, you know. Th- these things take time, development, and matches. And the more matches they play, the more tournaments they play as a group, uh, the better they're going to get. So you know, hopefully, the three of us can come along and just add a little bit of um, add a little bit of experience from tournament football and preparation football, and and give them that little edge to to again, as I said earlier, hopefully qualify for their first World Cup in history.
0: Yeah, well, good luck, mate. We we certainly wish you all. Um... The very best of luck there, Al. The um, historically, the Philippines have had a strong connection with America and American sport. The, the the players go in through the the American college system to play football and then maybe play in the um, in the, the 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 women's competition over there.
1: Yeah, look, yeah, I think there's a little bit of a history of that, um, and and there's there's a lot of players there who were who are possibly uh, first generation Americans as well. Um, but, you know, anyone, as we've seen with the Socceroos just recently, you know, we've got Martin Boyle in the team and and Harry Souter in the team and, and Karacic as well. So, you know, we've got guys who have got that those ties to Australia and, you know, <laughs> I have to say watching the Socceroos in the last couple of games, Martin Boyle's probably been one of my favourite players to watch. Um, and yeah. Gianni just signed up, but I saw he was picked in the Socceroos today as well. So really happy for him and proud. Proud that he's been selected in that team as well. But, you know, the way Martin Boyle plays with the passion and pride of our Aussie jersey, it just makes you proud to watch the game and, and, and that he has the connection to us as a country and want to represent our country. So, you know, relating that back to the Philippines, anyone who wants to wear that jersey and wear that jersey with pride, um, you know, is going to do the whole country proud and, and ensure that there's a legacy left, you know, both wherever it is across the world, but especially in the Philippines for young kids. Have someone to aspire to and someone to follow, and you know have that have that journey of being a football fan as well. Yeah.
0: All right. Let, let's roll the clock back a little bit. Not that we want to spend too much time talking about your your playing uh, career, but normally that's where we um, that's where we fall in love with the game. Where, where did you play your, your junior football?
1: Yeah. Look, I I grew up in Sydney. I I was born in Blackdown, so you know the heartland of. Of football and you know being a, a first generation Aussie as well with with parents from the Balkans that uh, you know you had football ingrained in you from the time you were born so you know like all like most other kids around the area we we all took up football and it was our passion and our religion and and um, you know I was very lucky to have so many strong clubs out in the western suburbs of Sydney and being born in that 72, 73, 74 age group there was a lot of uh, first generation Aussies who were who were similarly taking up the game and playing with the same kind of passion as well. So, you know, it was a pretty strong age group and and so many strong clubs around there within youth football, you know, Blackdown Cities and and you know, Sydney, Croatia were particularly strong at the time. Melita was strong at the time. So, you know, Sydney Olympics and Arpias, they were all they were all breeding grounds for these you know, first generation of Aussies that, that were coming through the ranks and, you know, starting their footballing journey. Yeah. And now, how about your? How
0: was your transition from playing into coaching? How did how did that come about?
1: Yeah, look, uh, my playing career probably took a little bit of a hit, you know, after National Youth League and and went back to the MPL, and that was you know a bit of a kick in the guts, as it is for, for most players who don't make that transition at that point. And you know, yeah. at that point, I I, uh, I did an ACL as well. Um, so I was out for eight or nine months, and and then had another one when I was 24. So in that time, I was undertaking a teaching degree um, and started becoming a high school PE teacher. And and even as part of that journey, you know, quickly I quickly siphoned off into the football element. Became the New South Wales schoolboys coach and the New South Wales schoolgirls coach. I used to go to all the schools tournaments, and you know, identified a lot of talent through through that pathway. Um, and while I was injured um, as well I did all my coaching licenses so even from an early yeah. age of 21 22 you know I'd done my level one level two and I think by the time I was 25 I'd started doing my level three down at the IAS with Jim Selby so yeah you know I, I really wanted that connection back to the game and didn't probably get what I wanted to out of my playing career but you know certainly wanted to be in touch with the game and have that have that real connection and input into the game. And, and I really found my feeding coaching. I loved it from the first time I did it. Um, you know, my my state team that I was a part of when I was a kid from New South Wales 13s through to 16s or 17s, for some reason or other, we were always the guinea pigs for, you know, Casey Brown, Casey and, and David Lee's um, coaching courses. Uh, you know, we had Casey, you know, berating us as players, but he was also berating the coach. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> I just remember being one of those kids, you know, going, you know, I think I could do that. I, I'd love to do that. And, and, you know, that that really planted a seed in me for for wanting to be a coach early on and 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 trying to help the game out. And as I said, by the time I was 23, 24, I'd already done all my badges and, you know, fell into those schoolboy and schoolgirl roles. And and by the time I was 27, 28, um, you know, one of my friends, Paul Benvelson, just happened to be... Interim TD at football New South Wales, and and one day rang me after a game when I was playing out at Sutherland, and said, "Can you come and help me out? We need a coach to fill in in the New South Wales Institute of Sport Women's program." Um And yeah, I said, "Sure, I'll help you out for a month or so." You know, I'm still playing. That <laughs> month turned out to be 12 years.
0: What what a what a remarkable journey! It I, I, there's a couple of things about your journey thus far. Uh, our, the, the it's incredible uh, in talking with coaches here uh, just how many successful coaches have had uh, a part of their journey in teaching, um, and I guess for me, and I'll be interested in your thoughts there, that, you know, is coaching teaching? Is that what it is? It's, it's obviously more than that nowadays, but, but teaching plays such a, an important role uh, in the education of players. Do you think that's a fair comment?
1: Yeah, look, everyone. Everyone's got their own journey, and everyone's got their own experiences that they bring to the table. And I guess there's pluses and minuses of of every different experience. When you go into coaching, you know, having played a hundred internationals and played A League or Premier League would give you, you know, the experience of playing in big matches and and playing against big opponents, and you know, obviously a higher level of coaching and opponents and teammates, and you know, so much experience you would have gained and knowledge from all those experiences, and then. You know, I guess there's people who, you know, maybe have followed my pathway, who have come from education backgrounds, maybe played at semi-decent levels and had a little bit of playing experience, but had more of the education background and and I guess almost fell into the game as being fans rather than experienced players. And they've both got their worth, they've both got their mm. value. Ultimately it's it's what you bring to the table when when you get into those coaching roles. And you know, particularly that first role at the New South Wales Institute of Sport, it was it was more of a talent ID and talent development role for the Matildas. Um, so the age span was initially 15 to 17, 18. So it really did fall into that education category and trying to, you know, prepare these players to become the next Matildas and the next world-class players to, to represent Australia. So, you know, that was my sort of starting point, uh, I guess, in elite football coaching. Um, yeah. But definitely the education background helped, you know, yeah. trying to work with players and different learning styles and having... All those things that you deal with day to day that you sometimes take for granted really help, I guess, when you're out on the training pitch.
0: How, how important were those 11 years at NSWIS and and, and the um, the work that you were doing there in terms of helping you to grow as a coach? I'm, I'm guessing you might have made the odd mistake or two like many of us in those early days.
1: Yeah, everyone. Everyone makes mistakes. But, but I guess the best thing about the New South Wales Institute of Sport was it wasn't a football organization; it was an elite sports organization, um, and and I look on those days fondly and learnt so much from from our CEO and our 2IC, Charles Turner and Claire Prado. Charles had played uh, water polo for Australia, and Claire um, was an excellent hockey player. So just to be in be in an environment like N-Swiss that's catering for gold medalists and world champions, and it's something that football had never even reached. You know our our pinnacle at that time was trying to qualify for the World Cup, Yeah. yet our sports pinnacle was trying to win the gold medal at the Olympics. And it really changed my mindset. You know, I really see the inferiority complex we always talk about in football here in Australia, um, how everything's great all around the world, but everything we do is at a lower level when, when I don't think that's the case. And, yeah. you know, I moved through those 10 years and very quickly, uh, by the second or third year, my goal's, You know, we're not for us, the Matildas or the Socceroos to qualify for World Cups, but it was to win. What do we have to do to find players and prepare players to win World Cups? And, you know, that's something I've taken with me all the way through my life. And, you know, when I got to the Matildas role, the discussion and the conversation from the starting point was not how do we get to quarters? How do we get to the World Cup? How are we going to win this World Cup? You know, and that was ingrained with me by being around coaches and players who who had already won gold medals and world championships at their respective sports.
0: Yeah. And when you got to that role in the Matildas, I'm guessing you were reconnecting with a, a number of the women that you helped develop uh, as a part of that journey through through Swiss and the young Matildas.
1: Yeah, look, that was, yeah, definitely. And obviously at Sydney FC as well, I'd coached a lot of those players, yeah. so almost... Everyone in the team at some point I'd cross paths with either at young Matilda's level being the head coach there for three or four years um, through Sydney FC or through the New South Wales Institute of Sport. There's probably only maybe four or five players who I hadn't directly coached at some point. Um, but I guess that, that presented a lot of positives, but also the challenge, um, you know, for the ones who I hadn't, like a lot of those girls I'd coached probably for six, seven, eight, ten years. years, obviously very very close bonds and relationships. And then there's some that I hadn't coached and then just trying to sort of separate myself uh, from being in that new role, a little bit almost like a player going from player to coach, you know, separating yourself from the group and and showing that sort of neutrality and that impartiality that you need to show that sort of fairness and transparency across the group. So, you know, especially in that first six months I I was extremely I was extremely mindful of, of not trying to show any favouritism and trying to just show that I was there to represent the whole country. And, you know, especially Sydney and Brisbane clashes in that old W League, um you know, the <laughs> old massive, massive derbies in the early days of W League. So, you know, just trying to remove yourself from that role and, and reimpose yourself in the new role and, and try and embrace the whole team was, was really important to me.
0: Yeah. And you did a you did a wonderful job in that role, eh? mate, and, and and helped move the brand of the Matildas uh, into a new realm, and, and obviously um, um, the ranking um, kept climbing as well. So all power to you. Now, on your on your journey, was there a a, a coach or coaches that had this uh, a significant influence on on you being a coach or or growing as a coach?
1: Look, um, probably. Probably as a young player and I guess in the New South Wales State teams, uh, the person who had the biggest influence on me as a player and the most I probably learnt as a player was David Lee. God um, yeah. rest his soul. So he was he was extremely organised, dedicated, was a visionary, I guess, for his time. I, I saw a couple of comments about Eric Worthington um, the other day on that little chat group. But, you know, David Lee was certainly a pioneer of of modern-day coaching and, and football practices and... Um, you know Casey De Bruin was obviously very closely linked to him in those early days in coaching courses and and stuff and I think they were definitely two of the pioneers in in Sydney based playing and coaching um I know yeah. that David Lee had a massive influence on people like Trevor Morgan who is now the national TD and and Kelly Cross and Oscar Gonzalez and other people who were all part of that sort of Sydney group so yeah David Lee was was definitely one of the coaches who who sort of first had a massive impact on my upbringing and my football education. But, you know, as I went along, there were so many coaches that I just tried to pick their brains and, and see how they ran things. You know, I was always a big fan of Kelly Cross. He used to train uh, the New South Wales Institute uh, sport boys program on the next field at Valentine Park. And, you know, I'd always casually just watch his sessions and, and the kind of information that he was sending and the, and the way that he went about it. Um but I guess as I got older, I was really attracted to Bielsa and the style and the and the aggression and uh, the discipline that his teams had. So you know, when I moved beyond sort of our local and community level, I love watching his teams play. And you know, I've even used you know I've even used a lot of the clips from Leeds in the last couple of years um, yeah. as tools to sort of show other teams of you know philosophies and ways we want to go about playing and mentality within a playing group and playing style.
0: Yeah, he's, uh, he's done some remarkable things, albeit they're, um, they haven't hit their straps just
1: at the moment in the, in, the, in the UPL, have they? They haven't hit their straps, but, you know, you can just see that I, I just love seeing teams with a playing style and a philosophy and you can see that everyone's pulling in the same direction and really they've still come up with pretty much the team they came up with from the championship and, you know, I'm not yeah. a Leeds fan, but I love watching them play. I love the aggression. Yeah. I love the man um you know orientation in their defensive principles i love the fact that they attack and attack with speed and and it's just 100 energy and and considering that they haven't invested in their squad for them to even survive in the premier league i think it's a massive a massive accomplishment and you know they're down the bottom at the moment but you know i'm hoping they stay up and can add to their squad and, and can challenge in the next couple of years yeah
0: Al, I was listening to a podcast a few months ago now, uh, nothing to do with sport. It was actually about business. And and, and the the people were talking about the difference between aspiration and capability. And I thought, that's a really good question for football coaches, because obviously we've got a philosophy. Everyone's got this philosophy about how they want to play. Um, And then at a particular time, you inherit a team or a group of players that are at this place, and we want to move them to somewhere else. How do you, how do you deal with that of taking? And maybe that's applicable now. You know that you, you've you've got the Philippines ranked 65th in the world, um, and and obviously they want to qualify for the first World Cup. How do you how do you make that how do you make that work? From going, this is the group that we've got. These this is the. You know, we want to be aspirational here, um but there's if we're if we're honest right now, this is the capability of the group, and how do we help them to to move forward?
1: yeah, look, that's a that's an excellent question and and I guess I can only I can only reflect on the experiences uh, that that I've lived. Um, when I was at the New South Wales Institute of Sport when I first started in two thousand and two, Um, We only had one Matilda in our squad and two players in the young Matilda squad. And for me, for a New South Wales group who traditionally are the strongest and biggest state um, in Australia in terms of football, um, I thought that was a pretty poor representation of our state. Um, And I quickly set about resetting the goals of the program for us to become the dominant state and really start producing the results of what we should you know there was a lot of investment going into the program and I wanted us to be the biggest and strongest state and make up the biggest portion of each national team and that meant to the playing group that our behaviors needed to reflect that you know from talent ID the way we prepared ourselves to the mentality we took to training the level of training all reflected us not only wanting to be uh, in the national team but once we get there make sure that we're the leaders in the group we're the best players in the group and we can we can pull our nation from being ranked 12 or 13 and not qualifying things to becoming one of the leaders in the world game so i've sort of taken that philosophy all the way through um as i said when i when i started at the matildas the first day was i think at the time we were ranked nine or ten you know the goal from the outset was how do we reach the top three how do yeah. we get on the podium and really put ourselves in with a chance of winning every major tournament we might win we might lose but how do we prepare ourselves and give us every give ourselves every possibility of of reaching the top 3 and i thought that was a realistic goal and, and yeah. obviously talks talk and talks cheap um but when you set when you set goals like that and and such a high bar you know it, it's incumbent upon everyone within that group to have that alignment to pull in the direction um on and off the pitch to try and attain that goal um and at the mariners very similar and you know not only did we have I think great leadership with our staff last year, but we had a great leadership group with the players who really set about the ambition of, of setting new marks for the team and especially you know I like to reflect on the history of each club or group and yeah. and ensure that they know where we've coming where we've come from, where we are and then as a group, where do we want to get to you know and that's easy for me to say we want to be number three but that has to be you know a group goal that has to be a group yeah. dynamic. And how do we arrive at this place? And, you know, people like Oliver Zanich and and Matt Simon were instrumental in us setting a new bar last year. Um, You know, and our behaviours on and off the pitch really reflected that. And whether that makes you come first or second or third, I'm not sure, but uh, I am pretty sure it has a good impact on the mentality and behaviours in a group to help you move in that direction.
0: And those behaviours, that is the culture, isn't it? It's, it? It can be all manner of different things. You can put posters on the wall and words on bits of paper, but essentially the behaviours that we do, the behaviours that are acceptable, the behaviours we walk past, that's where the culture really lives.
1: Yeah, look, there's so many comments about cultures in there and, and one of my favourite ones is whether you like it or not, every team has a culture. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it simply is the collection of everyone's behaviours at that time that, that will decide what that culture is. And ultimately, you know, you can always make excuses for your culture. You can always make excuses for lack of facilities, lack of money, lack of this, lack of that. But ultimately, it's your mentality and your behaviours that you bring to the table as a group uh, that will determine what that culture becomes and how it evolves and how it grows and, and who can grow within that culture. You know, who's accepted within that culture, who thrives within that culture. And, you know, when you look at, you know, when I've loved sport my whole life, but when you look at special group dynamics, you you can easily look at, you know, whatever Fergie did at Manchester United over such a long time. Most players who went there were at their peak at the time they were at Man United. And then wherever they came or wherever they went after, you know, some obviously, you know, were better after and whatever, but at that time they were all at their peak and, you know, Melbourne Storm here in the NRL, pretty much whoever goes there and works with Craig Bellamy, for whatever reason, is it leadership, is it his leadership, is it other players within the group, is it a collection of all... You know, players who go there just happen to play at their peak for the period that they're there and, you know, that's something special that, that good teams and good clubs and good countries find a way to have and the best ones find a way to maintain it.
0: Yeah. Al, we could have a... Um uh, a podcast series on developing culture, but we we don't have time to do that right now. I'm sure the listeners out there would love me to ask you, so if you can do this simply, how, how do you, because I'm, I'm going to guess that taking over a brand new team in the Philippines national team, that, that the development and building of a culture there is going to be really, really important. What, what have you found the, the, the things that you're going to look to do uh, initially to, to make sure that that culture's bright and bubbly and moving in the right direction?
1: Yeah, look, again, I've got to embrace what their history has been in the last three or four years. And and I've spent the last two, three weeks already meeting with as many players as I can and staff to find out, you know, what their recent experiences have been, uh, especially within the national team, but also as individuals. I think I think it's important for us to embrace whatever their cultures are you know, that's going to be a big challenge for us to ensure that, you know, we're aligned with what their national team culture already is and and add value to that rather than, you know, throw everything out, um, throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are obviously positives within the group and and immersing ourselves within their culture and finding a way um, to get the best out of each individual. You know, we've really worked hard already at at getting to know as many players as we can. And for me, for me, that's the key, that one-on-one interaction and, and finding out what makes each individual within the staff and the playing group tick and, and you know, how can we get them to the best possible level uh, within a short space of time. I think they're the critical elements, finding out about each individual, how are we going to cater for each individual and ultimately how are we going to bring that person into the group to get the best out of them within the group and then maximise the level of the group as well.
0: Yeah, that sounds, sounds good. And, uh, and, again, we wish you uh, all power with all of that. Um, stage, how has your coaching changed or developed over your
1: journey? Um, look, that's a good question. I've always, um, I've always been pretty proactive with uh, the attacking side of the game. I think over the last four or five years I've, I've become even more, I guess, pragmatic and, and organised and structured around our, our, our BPO. Um, you know, and the connection of that, especially in, in transition. Um, you know, when I went to the Mariners, obviously they were a team who who conceded a lot of goals, um, and then just trying to really evolve that part of the game. And you know, I have to say, in the last two years, I probably learned more about myself and coaching than I had in the previous ten years, just simply due to not being in my comfort zone. You know, having been around the same players for such a long time. Yeah. You know, it, and. It, not that it was a comfort zone, but just knowing the players so well, you know, having, having known the players from age 14, 15 through to 24, 25, 27, 30 years of age, um, you know, we knew each other inside out and in terms of, you know, what they were going to do on the pitch and, and how they were going to act and and what their, their tools were that they brought. But, you know, coming into an environment and a team that had, that had leaked so many goals, it, it was very important for us to have a, a, a consistent structure and one that that could, you know, resist the big teams like Sydney's and Melbourne City's who had so many attacking weapons. So, you know, yeah. it's definitely a part of, you know, my coaching in the last couple of years that, that I think has evolved really well. Um, but I think the most important parts of coaching are probably not the football aspects, they're the non-football aspects. You know, really ensuring that you have a harmonious group, a group that, you know, is aligned, a group that's together, a group that's willing to fight for each other um, and, and ensuring that there is that connectivity, you know, within the group, within the staff, within the playing group to, to try and find the best. You know, again, I said the same thing before, trying to get the best out of everyone for when the yeah. crucial moments come along and we can all perform under pressure. Yeah.
0: It, it's interesting that you said you probably learned as much in the last 12 months as you, you had prior to that. It's, it's is it is it fair to say that, that when you lose as a coach, there's a great learning opportunity there all the time. So when you have a season, when there are a lot more losses than wins, it's an incredible opportunity to learn. The, the dilemma for us as coaches is though at the professional level, the more losses you have, the closer you probably come to, to losing your gig, which is, you know, it's almost doesn't make sense, but we do understand how that works. Do you think, do you think that's a, um, a, fair, uh, a fair summary of that as well? Is, is that's where the learning is in, in the
1: losing? Yeah, look, it's it's definitely a big part of it. Um, for whatever reason, you know, as I said, I started it two thousand and two at New South Wales and Sydney FC and the Matildas and pretty much all those environments. And you even mentioned Hill Sports High. I'd had a run of sixteen or seventeen years where basically all those teams were winning teams. um yeah. You know, we made the finals every year with Sydney, whether we came first or second. We You know, with the N-Swiss team, we'd always win the local domestic comps. With the Matildas, we were pretty successful year on, year out. Even at Hill Sports High, you know, both in the boys' and girls' football programs, we basically made the final every year for about eight or nine years straight. So I was always in a winning environment. Not that that I didn't learn within that environment, but certainly going to the Mariners and going to the A-League, where I didn't have a strong connection with anyone um, or the environment, other than being a fan. Um, there was so much learning that, that, that took place. And, you know, during that COVID break in that first year, there was, I certainly did a lot of reflecting about what I could have done, what I should have done. Um, <laughs> if I do survive, what I'm going to do when I get back. And, and basically, from that point onwards, uh, you know, even that post COVID break, I think we had one loss, one win, and two draws. For me, it uh, sowed the seeds of things that we needed to do when we came back the following preseason. And yeah. we took a lot of that on board, you know, Noel and I worked really hard. Our, our small but limited coaching staff, you know, worked extremely hard to give the players the environment that we thought we needed to to give them the best chance of performing. And as I said, along with the leadership group, along with all the other assets around the team, I, I thought we did a really good job.
0: Yeah. No, you did. It, it was great. And it was it was great to watch them play. Some of the football was uh, was absolutely fantastic. Thank, thanks for sharing that, mate. Yeah. Um, have you ever had a formal coaching mentor? You spoke about David Lee. Have you ever had someone that's that's you know you've got on the end of the phone and you can regularly talk through?
1: No, coaching, no, as not, we in know? no not in terms of football. Probably my best yeah. sounding boy is Noel, um, yeah, he's been with me now for four years, maybe even a touch longer. Um, you know, he's. He's a very passionate, knowledgeable and experienced guy as well. And, you know, behind closed doors, even at Mariners last year, you know, we were driving together two hours backward and forward each trip. Um, So, you know, 90 minutes of that 120 minutes was basically discussing (laughs) and talking about the team and what we did at training and what we can do better. And, and, um, you know, it was... (laughs) Forty-two weeks of, of productive discussions in the car about you know, how, how we both how we both need to improve. So, uh, but you know, he was probably the best sounding board. Uh, we both, you know, had, had an immense passion for trying to do better and trying to improve the environment. Yeah. So, you know, he's probably been the best sounding board in recent times. I've had I've had one guy who, who I talked to, you know, in terms of leadership and culture and all that, a non-football person, yeah. um, and he's been a good mentor for me. But um yeah from a football perspective I'd say Naz has probably been the best one over the last few years.
0: Yeah it's it's great when you've got someone that you can trust and you've got uh, one another's own you know best interests at heart and you can have uh, good honest frank discussions to to bounce Definitely. things off isn't it. Yeah. Definitely. 100%. You're listening to the Football Coaching Life a podcast brought to you by Football Coaches Australia and Making Media the Podcast Professionals. Today we've got a wonderful guest in Alan Stajic who's currently the head coach of the women's national team and the Philippines, uh, having a great conversation about his coaching journey. Al, you mentioned your time at NSWIS. Uh, I, I was also fortunate to work, to work at the AIS for a, a couple of years with Ronnie Smith, and, and one of the things that I loved about being in that environment was this vast array of different sports and coaches from different sports, and they would regularly have catch-ups where they, uh, you know, they bounce coaching things off of one another. How do you guys do this? How do you do this? A lot of that was to do with management uh, and, and perhaps leadership. Um, obviously, things uh, differed te- technically. But have you um, found benefit in, in talking with coaches from outside of football?
1: My incredible benefit. As I said, it was the best time of my um, coaching life um, at New South Wales Institute of Sport um having, having, as I said, the leadership, but, but the cohort of coaches that we had from water polo to gymnastics to hockey, um, had a couple of close friends who were in the hockey program. And, you know, back then it was even interesting. You, you said there's not much correlation tactically, but back then even the hockey program had, had removed or well, hockey had removed the offside rule and the yeah. impact that, that had on defending. And I remember those discussions vividly, you know, about them defending in front rather than from behind, knowing they had no protection with a line behind. And, you know, football wasn't as big on blocking passing lanes and all that back then, you know. There was a little bit of talk yeah. of that, but it wasn't, it wasn't as overt it was as it is now. And, you know, a lot of the principles that I think hockey adapted because they removed the offside have really evolved in football in the last 10 or 15 years, especially defensively. Uh, but pressure on the ball and off sidelines. So, you know, I loved having those discussions with other sports. Uh, there's so much you can learn, but you're right, the whole gamut from culture to training styles to the preparations for major tournaments to, you know, how they deal with the heat, the cold, the match, you know, 90 minutes interchange, all those different things. They're all just great learning tools and and hopefully, you know, they're things you can draw upon when you need them under pressure especially.
0: Yeah. No, th- thanks for that. Um so why do you do it, Stage? Why
1: do you coach? <laughs> I asked myself that question every day. <laughs> um, I, I think I answered it at the beginning. Um, when I started, when I was 23, 24 in coaching, it was my way of staying connected to the game. Um, it's basically been my love and passion from the time I was I was a little kid. You know, I remember getting up and and watching basically every bit of football I could when SBS came along, I was the person who was watching every game of National League, watching the World Game, watching every little. So I was just in my blood. Um, and you know, I happened not to have the football career that I wanted in terms of a player, but just maintaining that contact and connection, and you know, love for the game through coaching has been you know a, a blessing. Uh, you know, I just I've said it a lot of times. You feel it's fortunate you're able to do something you love every day of your life and the fact that people want to pay you for it is is even better (laughs) But, but um no I just love the game and and having such a strong being a first generation Aussie you almost have even a greater connection I guess to Australia and wanting to be proud of of where you've grown up and your homeland so when you blend I guess those two points together the passion for football and the passion for our country and the fact that football's always been the underdog in this country and always been the one that we're feeling (laughs) as i said we have that inferiority complex it gives me more drive and motivation to want to prove ourselves and to prove that australia can be one of the best footballing nations in the world
0: yeah stage you mentioned before you know so much of your coaching career has been spent uh in winning environments um which which you know you 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 go to a team um, and, and you had a year at the Mariners where things weren't so great and the learning opportunities there. Um, you had that horrible ending to your journey uh, with the Matildas, and we're not going to drill down into that right now. But um, to, to go from that willingness to that to that situation, which which must have been horrific for you and your family, how, how important is it for coaches to develop resilience and is there a is that like a muscle is that something you can work on how how to how to how do you can you coach it you coach your players to be more resilient but but I'm really keen to know how important you value resilience uh, in your role as a coach.
1: Yeah at the first part of that question I wasn't sure if you're if you were going to mention the word but I think out of all the attributes anyone needs to have to be successful in in any part of life that especially sport is is resilience and you know, it's it's the kind of thing that I've discussed with players so often on their journey, um, you know, as youngsters, as 15, 16, 17-year-olds. There are so many, so many hurdles that come in your way, whether it's injury, whether it's not being selected for a team, whether it's playing in the position you don't like, whether it's whatever the case may be, you know, whether it might be different issues in your personal life um, at that particular point. You know, there's so many things that are going to get thrown in our way at different times. So I guess I had to fall back on a little bit of the things that I'd been preaching and then obviously live. Uh, it was the first time in my life I'd been sacked and, you know, at 45 I didn't have other experiences to fall back on, but I knew I knew that, you know, I had to find a way to bounce back up on my feet and and have another go. You know, I knew that that wasn't going to be uh, the place where I lie down and, and, and die from a football perspective and from a coaching perspective. Um, I knew that I had more to give and there was so much more I wanted to give back to the sport and, and maintain, as I said before, my connection with the sport. So, you know, I was very fortunate and grateful um, that that Mike Charlesworth and Sean Millkamp gave me the opportunity, having not been an A-League coach before, um, thrown into the deep end. They were, I think, one win out of 21 at the time when I came in as interim coach towards the end of that season. So it was, you know, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Um <laughs> But I love it. From the first day I set foot at the Mariners, I love the club. You know, have that regional experience and that connectivity to the local community. It's just different to a capital city. You know, you just really have that affection and connection with a local community. And that's why I think that clubs like the Central Coast and Newcastle in particular are are so important for for the Um, A-League. You know, for for me, we should be spreading throughout more regions throughout the country because football is the one sport that's played everywhere. But but certainly going back to that resilience question it is it is probably in my opinion even more important than talent in, in who's going to make it in in any facet of life in particularly football
0: yeah you've got to keep being prepared to pick yourself up and and go again don't you
1: now yeah.
0: if i can ask you if i can flip that around because you then um had a i think Three-year contract at the Mariners, and at the end of last season, which was you know they finished third, probably the best position that the Mariners and finished. The, some wonderful football, some great development of the talent there. Um, and you resigned from that role, and, and again, I don't want to drill down into the details of that. But how do you, how as a coach, do you know that it's time to walk away?
1: Yeah, look, it was um, there was a lot of factors that, that went into the decision. Um, as, as I said, even without going into the whole multitude of reasons, yeah. just driving driving up and down two hours each way, six days a week, isn't the easiest, and and sacrificing so much um, of your family time, just four hours a day in the car, 24 hours a week, is is already a starting point that makes it tough. Um, but as I said, once I got to work, I absolutely loved it. The the team up there, the staff I had that I worked with. Were the best staff I've ever worked with. So engaged with the team, so aligned. Um, the players, the players were brilliant. But, but for me, having done that, was sort of two and a half years of A League. I just felt that I wanted a new challenge and wanted something new. Um, I wasn't sure what that was. Uh, I wasn't sure where I was going to land. Um, COVID hit almost immediately after that. So we've been in in four months of lockdown. Um, but I, I wasn't sure, but I knew that I wanted something different, uh, and I wanted a new challenge. And and again, I'm still not sure what that's going to be long term, even during this Philippines role, and maybe after that. But but I just know that I want something else and something new and different, exciting and moat. And I, I have to say, at the moment, I'm probably the most excited I've been for a long time about this new challenge. You know, taking yeah. a team that hasn't done something before that's that hasn't really had opportunities at major tournaments. Um, and trying to see if we can help them get to a point that they've never got to before is is, is really exciting um yeah. you know and we all can't wait to get there to be honest
0: yeah and uh, the football gods have got a sense of humor because you're in the ASC, you're in a group, you're in a group with Australia, and I've just worked out today that the the nickname uh, of the Philippines is the Malditas, not the, not the Matildas. Sorry, let me say that again. The Malditas, which apparently means feisty, feisty ladies, um, that, that's quite remarkable because you'll probably be based in the same hotel and and all that, and I think play Australia in the
1: second game, uh, second group right. game, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was always That's inevitable, that. wasn't it? We're always gonna I was one <laughs> and my daughter was there next and you know we just looked at each other and just laughed and knew that it had to be, better. but um to be honest, there's there's five spots up for the World Cup and Australia's not counted um as part of that um, as part of that number. So yeah, you know, there's there's twelve countries going to that tournament, of which eleven, you know, are fighting for those five spots. So as important yeah. as the Open Cup is. Um, the big, the big prize for us is ensuring that we get to that top five position. So you know, the Matildas game is important, and maybe from a personal perspective, <laughs> it carries that extra little bit of, a little bit of spice and fire. But for me personally, um, you know, the first game that we play Thailand and, and Indonesia game three really are the games for us to to try and attack and get that win up so that we can move through yeah. to the quarterfinals and, and move to the next level. You know, Australia is at a level where in Australia and Japan have traditionally been the two strongest teams in the confederation over the last six or seven years, so that's going to be you know an extremely tough game. You know, we saw last week against Brazil that that they're they're at a very high level, and and when they turn it on, they're a match for any team in the world. But you know, yeah. those games against Thailand and Indonesia are certainly going to be two games where, where we're going to have to have, be at our best to ensure we get to the quarterfinals.
0: Yeah. Again, well, good good luck with that. We we'll look forward to uh, to seeing the results come through. Um, what have been your most enjoyable moments as a coach so far?
1: Um, oh, look, there's so many to be honest. Um, I, I think um, there's quite a few that spring to mind. I think beating America for the first time with the Matildas was, was a massive day. Um, and it was only at the Tournament of Nations, wasn't at the World Cup or, or at the Olympics. But, but having not beaten them ever in history and them being the number one team in the world almost entirely over the last 30 or 40 years, I think Germany were number one for a small period as well. But just for the team to know that they can beat the best team in the world on any yeah. given day, massive moment of belief, um, and, and it's not that fake belief and false bravado, it's we can beat these guys. You know, on any given day, and let's play them in the World Cup or World Cup final, and, and we know that we can beat them now. You know, it's not yeah. something that hasn't happened before. That was, that was a massive moment. Um Playing Brazil at the Olympics in front of 60,000 people were you know, sent sent chills down the spine. Still today, yeah. you know, I think about the Brazilians singing their anthem and how passionate. Um, and emotional that was. Um, it was just brilliant. And that, that happened to be the same stadium where they the men's team had lost 7-1 uh, to Germany the year before at the Men's World Cup. So I think had Brazil yeah. lost tonight, I think they probably would have burnt the stadium. <laughs> 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 um, but um, that was a massive moment. And I guess last year at, at Mariners, um, you know, crowds were banned obviously for a long part of the season and it only just returned in, in small numbers. But a couple of days where we had ten or twelve thousand people when we played Sydney FC, and we had a two-two draw at home, and then Macarthur in the finals match when there was twelve or thirteen thousand people was just, you know, a great day, great atmosphere, and again, just that, you know, that reaffirmation that football really does belong in these regional areas, and the Central Coast really do deserve to have an A-League team and a strong A-League team.
0: Yeah, no, I love it. Okay, mate, what are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned?
1: In your coaching journey, um, look. I think I think humility and and gratitude are probably the first two that spring to mind, and then probably resilience. Um, I, I think being grateful. You know, we we lose perspective so quickly, and especially in Australia, we always want more. But just learning that sense of gratitude and appreciating the moment that we have, and appreciating what we've been given, and appreciating that it's uh, that it's probably a lot more than a lot of other people are given around the world, whether it's resources, whether it's opportunity, whether it's other things. We really do live in the best country in the world and, and you know, unless you've travelled, sometimes you don't realise that and sometimes yeah. even when you have travelled, you, you forget about that, that we really do have more opportunity and, and more things at our disposal than a lot of other people around the world. And, and for me, humility is a big one, you know, always remembering where you came from, being humble and, and appreciating everyone along the journey, you know, whether they're, whether they someone who's just starting out at a club or whether there's someone who's been there for 10, 20 or 30 years, ensuring that everyone has that respect and and equality around the group and, and everyone has their, you know, important value that they bring to the club and, and how important they all are. So I think they're massively important things for me. Yeah, no, I like that a lot, mate. So then following on from that, what does
0: success look like?
1: Good, you're asking all the good questions. You've done this before. <laughs> um,
0: I've, le- I've learned to shut up after I've asked them as well.
1: <laughs> um, look, I'm a, I'm a really sore loser. Uh, I'm a bit of a sook for about 24 or 48 hours <laughs> after which loss. Um And for me, for me, I've always, you know, I used to get teased at school that it was win at all costs, but I've learned that Winning is important and success is important, but you know, it depends where you're coaching and at what time as to what success actually is. And you know, as I mentioned before at Hill Sports High, winning we made a lot of finals in a row, but that wasn't how I actually judged how well we did. It was how many players went on to play A League, W League, Matilda's, Socceroos, and how did we add enough tools for them to be successful at that level? So you know success can carry so many different things from development to winning to having a good environment to, have, to seeing people flourish and 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 reach new levels that maybe they didn't even know they, they were capable of i think that's really what success is and and you know, i guess that goes back to sort of the teaching background when you see when you see a player or an athlete achieve something and and have that satisfaction and reward it really does give everyone else that that sense of pride and achievement in having hopefully helped them in that journey. Yeah, no, I like that a
0: lot. Thanks, mate. Okay, downhill run, one to go. So if you have one piece of wisdom you could offer coaches, whether they were in the beginning of their journey, in the middle of it, or coming towards the, the end don't of their it. journey, just the one. <laughs> no, nah, come on, mate, you don't mean that. <laughs> Ernie, Ernie Merrick said Check that the VAR is working. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, let me re- get the straight face on. So if you have one piece of wisdom that you could offer the
1: coaches, what would that be? Oh, wow. Look, at the end of the day, it's it's got to be fun. you got to enjoy it because uh, it's a tough job. Um, playing and coaching are, are, for me, almost totally different. You know, playing, you've got that really really self-centred aspect of, you know, trying to improve yourself. And obviously you, you're part of a team and you're part of a group and, and and all the things that go along with that. But as a coach, it can be a lonely a lonely experience. So, you know, you've really got to find that enjoyment and fun and reward in, in the process of whatever it is that you want to achieve. You know, is it the connection to the game? Is it winning? Is it w- whatever it is? But it has to be fun because if it's not fun, it's, it's just too tough a job.
0: It's not fun. It's just too tough a job. What a wonderful place to finish it. <laughs> Alan Stasic, head coach of the Philippines Women's National Team, heading off to the the, uh, the Asian Cup. Thank you very much, Al. Really, really appreciate your time and, and uh, your knowledge and your wisdom. It's been a terrific conversation. Um, and coaches around Australia, thank you.
1: Thanks, guys. Appreciate
0: it. <laughs> If you've enjoyed Conversation with Alan, please go to footballcoachesoz.org.au. You can buy a membership, renew a membership, or just find out a whole bunch of great information. Have a wonderful day.